Also, what's fascinating, one time we actually pulled some of the top-rated participants into a workshop. And so I could see their online kind of... Um, they gave it all in their videos. But in real life, a couple of them were so introverted and it was fascinating to see them in a live group situation as opposed to being online. Mm, that's interesting. Because online they're in the safety of their bedroom. This is younger women. safety of their bedroom kind of survey moderated them through video to kind of think emotionally or you know, tap into their feelings and talk to camera when they were ready and really kind of give it their all. But then in real life, there was some that were just almost like, say, different people, but just certainly the pressures of being in a group situation were felt by them. Real People is produced by Square Holes, an agency conducting and publishing customised explorative research on key consumer markets, customers and population segments. Squareholes also provides associated consulting and support to ignite positive business and social behaviour change. Visit squareholes.com for more. Radio, hello there. My name is Jason Dunstone and welcome to Real People, where we interview average and not-so-average people, academics, researchers and leading thinkers to help us better understand what real people believe and how they behave. Today we are joined by Ainsley Williams, the CEO and co-founder of Quali, the Australian-based qualitative research software platform launched in 2016. You can find Quali at quali.com. We go way back to Ainsley's childhood as a young girl who loved to stare at other people and how this deep curiosity as to what makes others tick led her to a successful career in research. We discuss the joys of being allowed in people's lives, their homes, and to listen to their stories and views. This is a fascinating discussion about the patterns in human attitudes and behaviours Ainsley has observed over her two decades in research, and her interest from a young age in how different people can be. We discuss the joys and complexity of creating software and bringing together Quali's research and technology skill sets to build towards the vision to scale globally. Quali has featured in the Australian Financial Review and other media, raised significant investment funding, including many notable supporters, boasts clients from Coca-Cola to Google, and is having huge success in Australia, the UK and beyond. Let's not waste a moment. On with the show. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now. From the beginning. Thanks for joining us today, Ainsley. I'm going to start off um, with a question I've asked in all of these. It's a bit of a sort of a left-handed kind of question. Um, what, what were you like as a young girl? What were you like when you were about, I don't know, I, I say about eight, but... Whatever I was, you want to do. Yeah, that's a really funny question because I was constantly told that to stop staring at people. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> and now I have a seven-month-old. I notice he's got the same tendency. <laughs> so I think I've always been... By your parents? Is by my right? parents, yeah. Stop staring at people, it's rude. But I think I've always been nosy and curious about people. So, uh, yeah, from a very young age, used to stare a lot and was... Yeah, the the memory um, of being a kid was to stop stop staring at people and kind of listening to what they were talking about. So that was definitely something I remember being in trouble by as that's a kid. Really, that's that's interesting, particularly because <laughs> we've got I've got kids older than yours, but I've got a fifteen year old and a 
just turned 10 year old but they do like kids do sort of look and see what's going on and they're fascinated about what's there maybe we kind of drum that out like, it's like parents are so embarrassed that your kids are just staring no, i think my kids even do it now you're getting out going out for coffee and they're just like looking at someone else and fixated on it i don't know maybe, maybe and, and is that do you think that kind of was you starting off as your researcher now? Deep I down think so. Or? I think because I still do it a little bit, I catch myself <laughs> now rather than being told off. Um, but I think the other the other thing, and these are more memories of things that I probably used to tell my parents, which was I used to say I'm bored a lot. So I, I kind of constantly needed to um, do things. and not I suppose not to be entertained, but at least to entertain myself. So yeah. being bored a lot, I'm bored. Are we there yet? That kind of thing. And also being nosy about the world around us and then being that annoying kid that probably asked why too much. Yeah, why about what? what was, there, was it just fascinated about, curious about everything or...? Yeah, probably. Um, my father's an engineer, aeronautical, uh, sorry, yeah. a, a biomedical engineer, but was in the Air Force. And so I remember asking kind of lots of questions around why and how do planes fly when they're so heavy so that those kind of big mm-hmm. questions why is the sky blue those kind of world around us questions i suppose um and then i think the staring at people just came in because it was I've, i suppose i've always been interested in people's stories and the older i've gotten the more eclectic the group of people are that are in my life because i find it interesting the walks of life that people walk from hmm. or within yeah. and so i perhaps wonder if that was this the beginning of that curiosity about people so yeah. and that's probably why i loved traveling so extensively at a young age even so you so, traveled a lot when you yeah were even as a go? kid so um i mean one of the earlier trips i remember being a really small child going to a lot of the south pacific islands my mum was an aerobics instructor on okay. cruise lines which is yeah, very sounds that, very exotic um but we were so we would have been kind of cool wouldn't it well it was it was so at four five six you know Three, age three even, would be on the cruise lines and dropping off into these, at the time, very exotic places like Fiji and Vanuatu. Yeah. So um, I remember from a young age sort of experiencing different cultures and certainly different look of people you know, growing up in very Anglo-Australia. And then certainly around age 10 going to Hong Kong when it was still part of the British colony, but having people um, touch the back of my hair while we are on the underground because I had very white blonde hair as a kid. Yeah. So... Um, I think the tra- travelling certainly got me curious in the, in the lives, the different lives that people led, because I could see other kids growing up in conditions that were really different to yeah. the ones I had at home. And mm. so I think that curiosity and the, the stories or the paths that people lead has been within my DNA, I suppose, from a young age. That's interesting. And yeah. travelling was a key part of that. It's such a yeah. contrast, because you get so... So um, used to growing up where you did in the you know the, the beachy suburbs of Sydney, everyone sort yeah. of looks the same and sort of does the same thing. Yeah. So to be thrust out of something like that into a very high rise Hong Kong cityscape was just sort of mind blowing. Did as you a live in Hong old. Kong? Or? No, just no, as a trip. Just, but I yeah. vividly remember being yeah, there and how yeah. different it was to where I'd grown up. And I mean, ironically speaking, I remember when I first started as a researcher, some of the first projects I went to were um, at Greystains. And I, first of all, didn't know where that was and proud to say I've spent more time there in the last 20 years. But just even getting out of my area of Sydney to another area of Sydney to go, this is real Australia, this mm-hmm. is Australia. It's not where I necessarily grew up. It's certainly not Fiji or Vanuatu or Hong Kong. So I think I've always been interested in things that aren't 
familiar to me. And I think so some of that listening in and staring at people is me understanding as a kid about differences and contrasts. Mm. It's interesting because I, I, I think the first interview or so of these, I think we're up to 37 or, or so, um, I thought I'll have these questions. We'll have to guide them through like you do when you're doing interviewing. You need to have a, a yeah. bit of a guide. And then I thought we'd just sort of let it kind of roll through, obviously a couple sort of a start and a consistent start and finish to a certain point. But curiosities come up quite consistently. People who mm. do quite amazing things in quite different directions, that curiosity and where that sort of sadness almost been part of them, and maybe everybody does, or maybe people who kind of, I know, look at look at the world differently and, and maybe do some things. And then and the travel has been important to yeah, right. part as well. So what what does I guess were you like how did how did your curiosity manifest as you as a school student, like primary school? to high school? I think I've tried lots of things. So if I contrast to my sister, who is chalk and cheese to me, she was stuck with the one type of sport and did that for 15 years, whereas I think I tried every single team sport the school offered, Mm. including extracurricular activities. I played three different musical instruments. And the most bizarre ones I could find towards the end, which was a thing called a mellophone, which is like a French horn, but it has trumpet valves, right? So I think that curiosity and this agitation or this sense of being bored and wanting to continue to discover meant that I've played almost every team sport that I could. Um, You know, did did things that were off the beat. Like I learnt how to fence. Um, And is that you? Was that... By and large, you saying to your parents, I want to do that. Or, yeah, or they didn't yeah. push either yeah. of myself or my sister into anything necessarily, yeah, but just, I want to try this, I want to try that. So, yeah, and right through to fencing that I, I tried about 10 years ago because I yeah. thought, looks fun, I want to try yeah. it. So, and do you climbing. think that's about you trying to find yourself or just try to like, have experiences in your life? Or I think it's more about experiences. I think there's just some things, I think you learn stuff about yourself, but also I obviously get a kick out of doing new things and different things. Um, So whether that's professionally or personally, um, or or meeting people who are so different to me because I think it's just such a refreshing jolt to understand how other people see the world. Um, So, yeah, I suppose that, that curiosity manifests... And also even to the subjects I could choose through into university or into high school. Yeah. You know, I, I did woodworking in a co-ed school, but as a female. So I feel like I've always been a bit of a salmon swimming upstream as yeah. well. Just so what to... were your best subjects? <sighs> woodworking? Yeah, I was quite yeah. good like yeah. with my hands in that manner. Um, probably not sewing, things that were maybe a bit more delicate. <laughs> or cooking. <laughs> anything you can <laughs> smash with a hammer. <laughs> uh, but anything where I... Uh, and languages, I yeah. suppose, or English okay. or debating. And just stuff around the general world. There was this plonky old subject when I did the HSC years ago um, called general studies. And it literally was looking at world issues and looking at... At, at issues on a macro level and writing about them. And I loved that one because I've always been interested in current affairs, not just, just locally but globally. So, yeah, things to do with my hands, things to do with communication and language, um, and then also things that have, a, a, I suppose, a global outlook were things that I was probably best at. Did you have it so around year 9, 10, maybe 11, your school started saying, what do you want to do when you finish school? What are you going to study? Or... Well, because I had an older sibling who yeah. went through the HSC and then into university. We always had the handbooks around because yeah, at the okay. time I think it was online. So yeah. you looked, th- you thumbed through the directory yeah. with all the all the degrees and things on offer. So I could I saw her go through that process. So 
being, I suppose, reasonably ambitious, I was on student councils and things, again, for experience, right? Um, I could see that I wanted to head to uni and I thought marketing looked pretty interesting and I thought management would be a good combo with that because not many women were in management positions way back at age 15. Um, So that's what I wanted to do. Again, salmon swimming upstream, but that was sort of what I aimed at. Back back I clearly remember in the Sensing that 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 marketing and management was interesting, but it was swimming against the stream. Yeah. So it wasn't... Uh, yeah. Okay. Maybe not marketing at the time, but certainly management, you know, yeah. talk of glass ceilings and things. I remember yeah, that okay. around my, um, you know, memories of being a, sort of a teenager. Yeah. Mm. There you go. Is that, that... Was that, what, discussions at school or just in the... I think the in the press, like generally. Yeah, like okay. we see it certainly a lot now in terms of the role of women in leadership and now they're being quotas around women sitting on boards and, you know, women leaders of countries have done great stuff, thinking of Iceland, for instance, some of the Scandi countries. But I remember that kind of um, discussion from way back from when I was a teenager. And um, I went to a technology high school. So, and again, that that actually hindered a lot of female enrolment. So again, we were a smaller cohort of females in a much larger pool of males. Skewed males. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. just because we had technology in our name and computers were a part of every class that we had. So did Um, that make you competitive with males? In a way, it made me think that we can do everything that they can do. Yeah. Um, And that was never pushed on me by my parents. It was just, I suppose, the situations I found myself in. And I suppose... It wasn't pushed on us by my, by my parents, but they, they certainly also didn't treat me as female. So mm. they let me chop wood or do fencing yeah, okay. or, you know, whatever I wanted to do. Um, it wasn't a... Um, and your family of two... Girls. Two girls? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, so it would have maybe would have been different if I had a male sibling. Yeah. I'm not sure. But That's it. It's always interesting. There's lots of discussion and debate about co-ed schools or... Or, or single-sex schools, yeah. boys versus girls, and so there's lots of different discussions around where, where that goes. Um, so you, you went into uni, and like, there was was research and that kind of field in your head at uni? No, I didn't even know what it was. Yeah. Actually, well, a lie, because I had worked as a catty interviewer at university again. Might as well try that end of the industry. Yeah. Not that I knew I was going to end up in it, but I thought it was good money. I could do a shift work around uni, so give yeah. it a crack. No, I didn't at all. I chose the degree, again, based on the at Macquarie University, but based on the ability to just do some core subjects, which would get me my bachelor's degree. Um, but then they were really flexible in terms yeah. of what other uh, subjects I could pull into that. And that's what interests me. So I could do, I did mythology, yeah. uh, I did some anthropology. So things that were, I suppose, helpful to teaching you how to think, yeah. but things that weren't strictly down that stream of marketing subjects yeah, okay. or economics yeah. or commerce. So again, there's. So not really necessarily strictly vocational. No. But likely in the future to help you in your job. Yeah, yeah okay. exactly. And so within the world of psychology, that was part of my degree. I could even choose within that, do I go down the neuroscience and cognition path yeah, or do okay. I go down more of the personality, behavioural development path? So I've, I liked the course because it gave, again, huge amounts of flexibility and, and in some creativity to yeah. kind of hobble a degree together, which still pushed me out with a degree in commerce, but it was made up of really interesting subjects. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. So... Like, did you kind of? When did you kind of work out what what work wise you were going to do? Once you, uh, well, I did pick up 
market research mm. methods, I think, in year two at uni. And that was when I first came across this thing of a focus group. Yeah. It was learned in a textbook. Uh, and I think we had to do an assignment, which was actually really it was just an online survey. So we actually did never did any qual at university. But um, on reflection, it was my best subject. I've looked back just out of curiosity. Best, best as in most enjoyable or best as in best grade? Best grade. Yeah, okay. yeah that okay. and also adolescent development in the psychology stream. So those two things can be, together were actually my best subjects while I was at uni. So uh, I suppose I started to find some aptitude for it anyway, even though it wasn't. You don't learn about moderating a focus group at uni, but no. you know what they are from yeah. a textbook. Um, did, but did it that subject start to spark your interest in this might be a career? Not even at that point, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of got towards the end of university and thought, I need a job, Mm. (laughs) So, as most people do. And the careers bulletin, again, on paper, uh, flicking through that. And I saw a job interview, a job ad written in just a really different way to all the other job ads, which were more we're looking for a graduate intern. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'll apply for all of those. And then there was this one ad that stood out and it's like, are you interested in brands? Do you under- want to understand how people tick? Yeah. Do you not want to be chained to a desk? And I thought, wow, this sounds super interesting. You know, so apply. And so I did. And that was my and, – and I applied – the spelling of my name is the male spelling of yeah. my name. So um, Bread and Butter is the agency. They're still around today. And they – I put my, my, my resume forward and they shortlisted me because I actually thought I was a male and they were trying to do their bit for the industry <laughs> and get some more male moderators, qualities in, yeah. in the industry. And I got shortlisted because I thought I was a bloke because there's nothing on my CV, no past interest to indicate one or the other. So obviously when they called me up and they realised I wasn't, they said, we well, you to come in anyway and have a chat. So I kind of fell into it. That's where I kicked off mm. things. And it was a great starting pad because it was a small agency. I had you know, four or five researchers to just soak up from around me, very experienced. And also planners. I previously had been planners, strap planners. So yeah. I got a very um, nuanced appreciation of certainly communications development research. From but it there. wasn't in your mind until that job came up. No, and it kind not of, at all. It was I thought it was still really marketing. the wording and way they... They communicated the ad, wasn't it really? Yeah, because yeah. it was different to yeah. everything else that I'd seen. And it sort of was like, are you interested in people? Tick. Yeah. Interested in brands, sure. How they play together, absolutely. Don't want to be chained to a desk. It just felt like it offered, it mm. just intrigued me and looked like it offered flexibility beyond a graduate program in inverted commas. Uh, so that's sort of, that's how it started. So yeah. I don't think at the time, certainly, I don't know where the AMSRS was more than 20 years ago, but they weren't they weren't loud and clear through mm. sort of the university. So amongst your anyway. cohort of, I know it wasn't just marketing, but your cohort of marketing students, what, like, were they, I'm assuming they were thinking about going into brand management or Yeah, no one else I or... know from university went into anything related to research. Mm. Some are doing category management, others are doing marketing, some went into real estate. So everyone fired off into completely That's different right. areas. It's an interesting, I was um, invited to go to a, a, a university recently and they had, it was an undergrad and they had two Two classes, and they had about five different groups of students doing a market research thing. They had to kind of come up with a methodology over a over a, a semester. And at the start, I had to, I went through and explained what what I do and what our business does, and and I kind of went through and said, well, who's looking to go into brand management and marketing? And I've done things like this over over the years, and and there was no one looking to go into like research or consumer insights. And I, I, 
the, the second time I did it, I, you know, in the, the second class, I played it up a little bit, but it was like, no one. And, and it's quite, it's quite, it's quite fascinating. Did they explain why? why? And I don't know whether it... I just don't think it was on their mind. I, I wonder sometimes whether they expect it to be a little bit boring. I, I, I don't know. It's, it's a real... I don't know whether... I, I do actually kind of observe sometimes whether... I don't my, my university f- lecturing friends and academics. I don't don't mean it personally, but I wonder sometimes whether it's it's not communicated in a way that sounds as interesting as it actually is. I think uh, it's hidden. Yeah. I actually think it's hidden. When I've talked to people now more in the technology space where I am today professionally, and I talk to them about what we do and the kind of briefs we do. They're fascinated that so much research goes into the things that they then see on the mm, shelf or the things right. that they see on TV by the way of communications. They're, they're blown away that so much thinking and trial and error and concepts that's go into right. what they see on the TV in 30 seconds or the type of product they pick up off the shelf in the supermarket or the type of credit card that comes out. So I that's think right. it's almost hidden from the It is. The and, and I've got a general sense that we've, we've employed a lot of graduates over the years and the, the smart graduates kind of find it. Like they, I think often they may be talking to a mentor or somebody at university and they'll say, I'm thinking about this stuff. And mm. that could be as broad as some strategy stuff or I kind of like this insight mm. thing or I want to know. And someone goes, oh, you should speak to such and such about that. And then they, I, I'd say pretty well any young person we've employed, I don't think they were saying, I want to get into market research. They're probably yeah, often they will actually say, yeah. we're surprised this is actually not as boring as I thought it would yeah. be, and which I think is an interesting one. I don't, I don't know how you – I don't think it's even a packaging thing. I think it's just a it's, – it's an interesting one of, like, it's – and you don't – sometimes it's a bit like when someone gets – when um, – you get the joke but no one else does and sometimes when you're in a sector like market research and it's, it's so interesting is it just is it is it your personal love for it that makes it interesting or is mm. it just it's yeah is it is it, like how do, how do you kind of bring those those young graduates who are there um into it because i guess that's the I, I, the earlier the talk before we started um we press record we're talking about research and, and and what's important and and the importance of strategic insight and and knowing how to find like find the um mm. find the meaning out of it and to me that means we've got to get really we've got to have got we need to have smart people going into the profession smart people thought. but i think also people that ask questions yeah, because okay. if you're not innately curious like because not every brief is going to float your boat that comes across the That's desk right. as a researcher so there's got to be something in every brief or something within yourself that finds something interesting. So even if it's around the next um, product innovation for packet cake mixes, mm. that's probably boring to some people, but maybe there's something fascinating around the pressure that mums have these days to actually bake the most beautiful that's birthday right. cake for their kids. Well, it could be a bit of government policy work that you might do and you go, wow, that, for one person that's totally boring and for another person that's... It's yeah. quite, um, so I think, quite fascinating. Yeah, so but maybe it's, a, maybe it's a, trying to find the right type of people if the, the wrong type of people going into any profession mm. may not find the right fit mm. and maybe won't last. But if you have got the right people who are curious or can't stop staring at people, maybe. Because <laughs> ironically right as well, you know, there's, there's two sides of our industry, of course. There's those yeah. who, who are agency side and provide sort of the research and there's others who commission who are client side. And... I always look at the client side and think, oh, I just couldn't go there necessarily because mm. it's about potentially one brand or 
variations mm, on one mm, brand. Mm. And I think where I sit, I can be working on anything from toys right. to cake mixes to policy to application right. forms to customer experience. And so and it's quite mental, isn't it? Yeah, it's the breadth like, of yeah, what you right. do. Um, and you end up being an expert in a little bit of an expert in a lot of things. Mm, and mm. I think that, again, I mean, that appeals to my disposition. Right. Um, so maybe it's about recruiting people who have that interest just generally across lots of things i always i wonder if it's people who like pub quizzes you know there's always someone who's really good at a pub quiz yeah, they know yeah. obscure facts and yeah. i think sometimes as a market researcher sitting on the agency side you do learn about and also having done pharma research pharmaceutical research you learn so much stuff about type 2 diabetes and yeah. then the next day you have a conversation about a credit card campaign and that just the breadth of stuff that you've mm. got to understand to to work That's in these right. projects is broad and i always think maybe the recruitment drive needs to be at pub quizzes to get someone who's got that same <laughs> breadth of interest and That's it. Uh, uh, before they're all drunk and knowledge yeah of course yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's interesting and maybe it's sort of i, I wonder some of the other side of it there's a when i first came into research many years ago many decades ago um i did, did a course in i think it was melbourne intro to market research with a whole bunch of other other new market researchers many of them gone on to all sorts of exciting things um but someone came one of the older researchers then sort of said it's lots of laborious stuff you need to go through to get to that interesting stuff at the end it's it's just you need to do things you need to just you need to collect the data you got to make sense of that data um and i think on a qual side and a quant side but if you're not willing to go through all the i guess for want of a better term the drudgery to get to the other side then maybe you're not going to like it either it's yeah, although when, being a quali, collecting the data was probably... The interesting bit. That was a super fun yeah, bit. Yeah. Get so much energy from other people when you're mm-hmm. on a roll moderating a group. Or just, you know, we just get to go into people's homes yeah. and see how they live. You know, as a kid who liked to stare at other people, like that was just, wow, that was the golden pass into people's homes and I could actually see how they, how things work. Um, so that was that was... Like I still couldn't – there was definitely moments when I was a, more of a junior or mid-level researcher where I thought, I cannot believe I get paid to do this. Mm, that's right. And I felt really fortunate that I'd fallen into a career where I felt that because I was watching my peers kind of stumble through graduate programs going, mm, this next three months I'm in the finance department and it's kind of boring, but then I get to go into marketing. Whereas I, was, I vividly remember sitting on Cronulla Beach one day observing how teens – uh, respect or not their time in the sun so are they being sun smart and I thought I'm being paid to sit on a beach to hang out with teens for the mm. day this is my job as a researcher I was just it was just mind-blowing that that's where I'd ended up yeah. and that's what I was doing so and you couldn't predict that it's just no sort of way. something that yeah and it, it's yeah um, I've got this sort of view that it's almost like there's, there's, oh, no, there's a a game that the the balls fall into the right the right size holes oh, and yeah. you look at no offence to our accountant, but like, or, or people like that, or your lawyer, that they might not think they're fit for that job, but then they, as they go through life, they go, "Oh, that job actually does fit who I, my personality." Or um, and maybe the same thing on a on a research side that mm. you don't necessarily anticipate going into that job, but if you let it mm. let your life flow, you fall into that career that fits, fits yeah. you. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a great feeling to to feel like you belong in the mm. thing that you do because it just fits with how you operate. That's right. Mm. And, and I guess the other, on a, like other professional services, when it, 
see it on the client side, but on the professional services, there is like the likes of accounting and lawyers where they, they'll, they'll bill on a 15-minute minute block or a half-an-hour block where research tends to be, or my experience anyway, is that you've got a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a price for a project and mm. you try to get it done as efficiently as you possibly can, but you're not mm. going, well, how, many, how much time have you spent on this project? Maybe a little bit of that sort of stuff goes on, but mm. but by and large, it's you're not going tick 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 tick. It's it's, it's trying to get the project done mm. as best you can. So mm. it's relatively open, brief at, at that point, just making sure the outputs mm. are done in a solid way. Yeah. yeah, I think the other part that is you know beyond data collection is just getting a kick out of making sense of something for a client. Yeah. So you came with this confusion or these hypotheses and I'm going to tell you the story of how things are. Yeah. And just giving them clarity so they can you know, leave that session or or read what you've written and know what to go and do. And mm. I think that's, that's also the other gratifying part is making sense of their world for them, mm-hmm. uh, I think, is, is a really good feeling. Making sense of the client's... World, yeah, because they come to you with confusion or chaos or things they're not sure about. And to be able to go back and say, here's what we recommend you should do based on what we've understood, um, it's a good feeling to give people clarity. Mm -hmm. And to be able to bring that, conceptualise that back. Yeah. Yeah. How you've been in research for, how how long did you say? Uh, 19 years. So I rounded up to 20. (laughs) So I always find it fascinating in, like, the role that we have as researchers, that you have so many different projects and you can roll from one project to another project and they're almost like chalk and cheese. What are some of the observations you've seen about what makes people tick? And obviously, being a quality, you've gone to people's homes and you know, focus groups and all sorts of different things. What are there sort of things that are, I don't know, maybe rather than the things that have changed, what are some of the consistent sort of, you talked about cultural differences before, but what are some of the consistencies you've seen? People always want to know that they're kind of the same as everyone else yeah. uh, in a funny way. Um, so, And I see that most acutely. And it doesn't matter whether I'm doing – I was doing an in-depth interview with a consultant-level cardiologist or a surgeon or whether I was in someone's home looking at how mum prepared dinner or mm-hmm. afternoon snacks for a kid. At the end of those sessions, they're one-on-one, they always want to know, so was I? sort of like everyone else (laughs) so I think there's this innate nervousness or desire to know that people sort of fit in yeah for most people I'm sure there's outliers that want to purposely stand out but there's this doesn't matter who they are they always have this so was I you know at the end not wanting to be too different was I you know same as everyone else like how weird am I or how how much of an outlier am I so I'd say that's consistent is that an insecurity do you think I think uh, it could be. I get more of the impression that it's more around an insecurity and am I weird? Because I suppose they've just felt vulnerable and exposed. They've had a stranger in their presence, stranger in inverted commas, delving into the recesses of their mind Mm -hmm. and getting them to talk about their motivations and feelings and behaviours. So maybe as a way to feel less exposed and just kind of zip up from that moment, they might just want to make sure that they're not... um, too different. Yeah. What so else? maybe. Yeah, what else do you sort of see has been consistency or something that's, that's changed, I don't mind? Well, unfortunately, I suppose years ago it was sort of the whole buy Australian mantra and that people would be really supportive of things made onshore. 
But when it came down to it, they're not. And I think, unfortunately or sadly, you see that more now from a, in the case of you know environmental or social welfare issues. Yeah. So it's great, and I really support it, and I love that it's 100% green, um, and it's recycled packaging and all that, and n- not tested on pets and all that kind of thing. But ultimately, they still aren't drivers of purchase or decision-making for a yeah. lot of people. And I think that's an observation that makes me a bit sad. Maybe that's my left leaning. The, the people, <laughs> unless it's cheaper and easier, yeah, they're not going to yeah. save the world. Exactly. Yeah. So time and time again, you see the same assets or attributes tested against products about, you know, packaging is recycled or it's no harmful colours or flavours or anything to do with the environment or social welfare or health even – and I still feel like people embrace it conceptually, but mm. actually not at the shelf or not at the point of purchase. Yeah. So even if it's, you know, take out this credit card and 5% of purchases will go to a charity or something, I still think people engage with that at a conceptual level. But if the interest rate's five points higher than the next card, they won't. So mm. still people still, unfortunately, I feel like still people still just think about them and their household and their back pocket. Mm. There's no greater thought for the greater good that's right and i think the more the world gets tumultuous and chaotic the more people retreat into their own worlds Mm. do you feel that that's becoming more of a people are more cautious about their self-preservation or or even just being more nervous about the world i think so yeah Yeah. and i think the more the less people can feel like they can control like look at how many prime ministers we've had just as an example in the last little while like the less people feel like they control the more they retreat to be able to control to want to control the things they can which are Mm. things right within their immediate reach that's literally their fridges and their their cupboards and you know what's online i suppose yeah and maybe that sort of insight into i think sometimes it's too easy to say that everybody wants to do good everybody wants to do things for the environment or uh, save the world or whatever but the reality is that they don't because when push comes to shove, there's mm. other competing mm. priorities. It's, and I'm a It's realist. a good insight in going, well, yeah. it's actually more complicated yeah. than, than, than that. Yeah. Um, and look, you can be great with social wel- welfare issues but crap with the environment. So I'm not a Puritan to think everyone's got to be good at everything all the time. But from, from where I sit, from a commercial point of view, you see all these do-good attributes or messages or features on things and... They just never test well. Mm. And I think after 20 years when you see them come through in another brief, you just know they're not going to test well because people care about other things rather than that it's good for the environment or it's good for mm. marginalised people. Yeah. But yeah, okay. And things that – anything else that you've seen has changed or evolved or the things that you – like? Do you, do you still stop and stare at people? Look, I do. Or have you done it so much? That no, you... I do because I like to try and guess what their backstory is. It's particularly interesting when you think people are on first dates. I think what I'm attracted <laughs> to is people in awkward moments as well because <laughs> their body language is often quite obvious. And also, I suppose, having done a lot of work with kids and teens over the years as well, like that just beautiful, awkward age for teens, boys or girls of sort of like 14 or 15, just super awkward. I just find that maybe it's just endearing, but I find that a really sweet age to to do well, research on their first date and yeah, well, it, and and if they're on their first date, that's kind of the double whammy. But otherwise, that kind of just human awkwardness actually, I find um, 
I'm actually smiling now as I talk as I think about <laughs> these things, but I just find it so it, they're so and human. Age, you're talking about younger people, but or just both, like age? all. So whether it's awkward at any age, or but certainly and also at the teenage years, I find like the awkwardness in people just refreshing because yeah. they're not trying to you know be someone else. They're not and you know in an online profile. They're not trying to impress. They're not mm-hmm. you know they're just being human and being a bit awkward. So I think I love that moment in yeah. people. Um, not intentionally awkward, though. No, not no. intentionally awkward, but just having a vul- Maybe it's about because people are showing their vulnerability yeah. and that's a really honest state for people to be in. And as a researcher, you almost want to see people in that honest, raw state. So maybe that's why I'm mm. kind of interested in that moment. No, I think that's the beauty when you go into people's homes. Like, you know, focus group situation, mm. I think they're bringing their best game, they're being a bit polite, they don't know everybody. When you're in their home, even as an individual or as a group of friends, I think yeah. it's just... They, they are more relaxed. They mm. are sort of often they, you, 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 you as a researcher the, mm. on the back foot because you're... Um, as yeah. long as you say immediately you've gone into homes a lot and everyone has messy cupboards and a messy fridge, <laughs> mm-hmm. you've got to put them at ease a little bit. But, yeah, I suppose seeing people in their most honest state is what you want to get to as a researcher. So I think I find that, is that the a most... Is that, yeah, that's probably a, I think that's probably a skill as a... Well, that is a skill of a researcher... I always sort of see the researchers need to be empathetic to client needs, but also the people. If the people that, on, that you're interviewing don't think mm. you care, then they're not going to actually open up yeah. to you. Then, then the next bits come into you need to be able to conceptualise all that feedback you get and then mm. be able to have the technical skills as well. But if you can't build up trust to the people you're actually speaking to, then you're really stuffed. So if you, yeah. if you don't care about the people you're interviewing, then you're not going to get anything out of them, yeah. really. And the fun part is being able to shape-shift how you do that, mm, depending on who you're talking right. to. So again, flexibility or creativity again in that that's right. space. And different cultures and different mm. different you know, classes, for want of a better term. Like mm. You've been able to sort of change and mm. flow who you are. and Yeah, that's, that's interesting. What's what's the weirdest house you've gone into? Can you think of a time when you've... Yeah, clearly, because it... it um, well, I just think she was clearly wasn't coping. She was a young mother, super high professional working woman who was accidentally fell pregnant um, and so had a toddler in her flat and it was like Steptoe and Son's house. There was just stuff everywhere and, and unsafely so everywhere. There was food everywhere, cupboard doors were open. You could barely walk through the place to sit at a desk, at the table and just wiping food and toys and paperwork and stuff out of the way. Like, it was more so the memory has stayed with me because this was probably more, this was probably more than ten years ago. But I was just alarmed, and it was one of those moments where you think, like, do I call docs? I don't think she yeah. hurt her child, but I think the environment in which the child was being brought up in was really unsavoury. Mm. She was an extremely professional. Um, prior to sort of having a child, she was in a really high-powered job. She was cashed up, an affluent type of person, but. Uh, her living conditions were just terrible. Mm. And that was years ago, and I vividly still remember that mm. flat. And that was, I wouldn't say it was weird, it was more alarming. I was like, what do I do here? Do I dial up child services? Or she clearly just wasn't coping, it's not mm. her fault, but I just wondered where her support was as mm. well. Um, so that, that burned into the memory for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you ever, like, with, with, obviously, I do the interview. Using that home as well, but we've had like some staff that like they they felt 
in, in certain situations, they'll feel quite uncomfortable. So, like, um, I know we had a young female staff member a few years ago and mm. had a couple of guys, and they, she said that wasn't that wasn't nice, and we maybe shouldn't have put her in that in that situation. And this was about probably a decade or so ago. Do you, have the, do, you, do, you do you buddy up in interviews like that? No, or no? it's funny, and, and, isn't it? Because I don't I don't do it either. And there's times when I kind of go, wow, that that you could be put in an awkward spot, but. It, but that's probably, I don't know maybe that maybe that's a bit of adrenaline going into someone's yeah, house. No. You don't know what's behind the door, but maybe maybe having a trust that there's only been one, and I've, again vividly recall it because it just put the hair on the back of my neck up. But one one in depth interview in twenty years of doing research that I felt I got the creep on by this person, a male kind of at home in his twenties or thirties or something or other, and I just. I just did the interview in 25 minutes and got out of there. And that's mm. been the only occasion where I felt like that. But it's funny because until sort of my parents or friends, once I started working in the industry and they're like, what? You go to people's homes who you've never met before and spend time there, sometimes <laughs> on your own with them. And they just found the whole concept really weird and, mm. and, and dangerous potentially. And... You know, we always had a rule in the agencies I worked in that if you got that, I think researchers anyway, you have an intuition, you have like a bit of a sixth sense. If you feel unsafe, you just, you don't go there. Mm. Um, And so it was just only the one time where I felt a bit yuck. So I just whipped through it really quickly and then sped off. And thankfully I was in another state, so I was in a higher car, so there was no way of tracking me Mm. (laughs) or following me, you know, easily. Um, But that was only the one time. But I did vow after that, and I also probably made a promise to my parents that if I did front up to a house which didn't feel right, that I just wouldn't enter. Yeah, and that's that was right. totally acceptable yeah. from you know, the people I worked with's point of view as well. Because yeah. it is a bit, when you think, stop and think about it, it is kind of weird. But I think your curiosity just takes over mm. and you're like, let me in there. What's going on? And maybe it's been prepared to. We only had that one time for, for this particular staff member. And, and she did get really spooked, but we haven't had it other times. But then mm. you do think as a, I'll do it and I'll be, I'll go, oh, I'm tough, I'll mm. do whatever. And you go, oh, probably not that tough. <laughs> it's in that, in that right, in the, in the right or wrong situation. Yeah. Maybe it's sort of just working. But, but that actually sort of, it also adds to the, I think, I, I probably realise that most people are, uh, are, are very nice. They're, they're, they're giving, they're, they're, they're generally good, they're, irrespective of where they've come from, they're, they're good people. Yeah, so, I think yeah, so too. Yeah. Um, I was thinking as you're going through sort of those situations of watching people. One of my, I don't know if I, I get a sort of a, I guess a morbid joy out of it, but when you watch couples having their date and they've obviously been together for so long that they're not even talking, they're just on their phones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's kind of sad, I maybe, suppose. Yeah. Maybe that's their only time that they get to do that. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Maybe, maybe they got so comfortable they can be quiet and they can just... They're, they're, um, they're, they're having dinner, but it's not with their partner. Maybe they're booking their the friend. next holiday yeah, and they're both searching stuff. That's what I mean. That's what I, I think I like about the curiosity of things is not always judging, oh, they're not talking to each other. They could literally be booking a holiday. That's one's wrong. looking at flights, one's looking at hotels. That's They're doing, a, you know, they're being efficient on their date night, having dinner and also booking yeah. their next holiday away. I have watched that. I've been out with my family. I'll go, they're not talking. They're on their phone still. They're on their phone. Oh, good, they spoke. <laughs> 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 okay. Um, where did Quali come from? Quali came from um, Rob Margenberg, who is a researcher, has been around for the same amount of time sort of thing. He came to me probably around four years ago and said, I've got this idea. Um, and the idea came about to kind of go, there's, there's so much of what we do that is the same day in and day out with yeah. focus groups, how we set up stimulus, how we engage people into a focus group and welcome them, the types of questions that we ask. And after doing 
20 odd years of, of qualitative briefs, you do see the same sorts of briefs over and over again, maybe different stimulus. So I think as well, it's just one of those um, methodologies that was sort of ripe for disruption in a way. So if you go back to Mad Men era, 70 yeah. years ago, they were doing focus groups. Yeah. And while there was obviously some advances with online qual in terms of making it more efficient, essentially it was taking what was happening face-to-face -face and putting it online. So they still required a researcher to operate mm. that yeah. platform. So the idea was to kind of harness a bit more of video technology, certainly, but also look at actually how to make the process more efficient and in doing so along the way kind of um, address some of the bugbears that clients have with the methodology. Yeah. So things like it's pretty expensive to hire consultants or it can take a long time yeah. to do or, you know, sometimes we need more of an objective voice because, you know, the marketing director's got the researcher in their pocket and the comms agency, creative agency gets their nose out of joint. So... Yeah. Uh, also, if everyone who's ever run or debriefed qualitative research has probably been asked the question of, how many people did you speak to? Yeah. So those kind of things, we thought, well, let's see if we can have a crack and, and fix all these sort yeah. of things up or address them all rather That's than fix right. them. But then also not just simply take what happens face-to-face -face online because there's certainly got to be a smarter way to do it. So yeah. we're not still leaving the onus on the researcher or the client to actually still do all the heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. So all of those things came about to be, well, can we, can we do this? And I suppose the ultimate test was as qualitative researchers, can we build an experience for participants that even though we're not there live, eyeballing them, moderating them um, and engaging them in a face-to-face -face manner, can we still do that and get them to a place of being able to tap into how they're feeling about things and really be insightful. So, in, you know, face-to-face -face you're moderating and so you yeah. probe and you can get them to that point of clarity. So could we do that without being live yeah. even? Yeah. So until we were confident that we could do that and get insightful, well-considered video responses from people, we felt like we didn't have a product or a methodology. Yeah. So that was the first step really. And that sort of thinking started, as I said, probably around, it was actually the end of 2016, early 20, sorry, yeah. the beginning of 2016, yeah. So, yeah, almost four years ago, I suppose. Yeah. Now we think, where has that gone? Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's where we've achieved a, yeah. a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have done quite a bit in four years, I suppose. So that's where it started. Um, uh, and so after Rob and I kicked around this idea um, a bit more, we were then introduced, we felt comfortable that, and he built the very first version of it, which was on Weebly. I don't yeah. know if anyone knows yeah. that platform. Nothing automated about it. Yeah. Uh, it was very plonky. Um, after we felt like we had something, um, his, um, a, a family relation of his who's in this space, Adir Schiffman, uh, successful in his own right, introduced Rob and I to uh, our current CTO of the business, um, okay. who's probably one of the best kind of hackers, developers yeah. um, out there for yeah. early stage startups. So we were fortunate to be um, paired up or put in a trio with him. So then we worked for another nine months, sort of taking two very qualitative researchers by way of thinking, 
working with a very development-minded person. So it was kind of a meeting of the minds of yeah. left and right brain, really, yeah. for nine months while we worked out could we actually achieve what we're trying to achieve technically. Mm. Uh, so that took us nine months to kind of work through that, uh, a lot of testing and learning along yeah. the way until we felt like we had the methodology there enough to be able to go and shop it around to some friendly clients to say, give us a crack. Okay. Let us have let's let us, let us run a brief for you on this with this methodology and see if we've got something. Uh, so that took us to kind of the beginning of 2017. So around a year of sweat, <laughs> basically getting it to that point. Um, getting it to a point where you had um, a product that a tech product that. Yeah, yeah, I suppose MVP, yeah, minimum viable yeah. product, as yeah. they call it. So, and really, that was focused on the methodology. We wanted to just see if there we, we got product market fit or methodology market fit, I should say, with that. So, um, that's when we reached out to some friendly clients who were Coke, ComBank, and IAG at the time, and said, "Give us a go. We've got this got this crazy idea. It just yeah. might work." Um, and that was enough of a their, – their feedback was enough of kind of um, of a story to go out and get some proper yeah, okay. investment. And that was where the first round of investment came from, to say, we think we're on to something. Please give us a, a lot of yeah. money so we can put some more developers on and actually now build out the and that proper early platform. Pro- it was that um, – you, you you'll correct me if I'm not right, but sort of emailing out to um, the to target target audience or target market or, or group – a group of participants and asking them a question and then do a video bit of feedback. Would they? They'd yeah, so a video response of about 50 seconds or that's so. Right, that's right, yeah. So, so how the methodology works, I suppose, is we write a, um, a video survey. So at certain points in that survey, so we say now we're, we're survey software with a qualitative soul because two quality researchers have come up with this mm-hmm. idea of running video surveys. So um, at certain points through the survey, some participants will be asked to record video responses. And you're right, it's 50 seconds. We train them into thinking uh, and articulating in that 50 seconds. So it's not waffle, I suppose. Um, It's quite considered. It's not vox pops. So at certain points, people will be recording video in a survey. Once roughly um, that smaller subset, and we call them qualitative participants in inverted commas, go through that process, we then invite a larger subset of participants through that video survey. And so um, we we treat them sort of more quantitatively, again, in inverted commas. So their primary task is they still answer all the same questions, but rather than record video, our platform will serve up video for them to watch and give a score to. And that score is based on how agreeable or resonating that opinion is and also how well that that insight's articulated. So just to get that methodology down put um, was kind of what we went to the clients with initially. It was still accessed by us as a methodology. There was no front on the platform. Um, and so that's what, um, so for the, for the next sort of year and a half, while the proper platform was being built and we were still operating off the MVP, which I'm pleased to say did about 80 projects. Though, so it was a quite stable MVP, minimum viable platform product. Um, while we had this kind of bigger, more scalable tech infrastructure being built in parallel, that's what we operate on now. So, yeah. our, as I like to say, the pipes are bigger and more can go through it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, and that's where we are today, as well as now having a front on the platform so clients could get in there and sort of um, access the methodology yeah. and run projects themselves in a self-sufficient, self-serve kind of way. Would you call yourselves a tech company or a research company? Software. 
software company. market research yeah. software or an insight platform i think is the is the current vernacular in okay. this space yeah, yeah insight platform because many of your team are, are tech guys is that right are more they? of our team are tech which yeah. is not unusual in the tech space to have yeah. a reasonably sized development team so we've got four developers now sitting including our cto who still actually has his hands on the tools so starting with a good cto and then it almost sort of yeah then we added out the, the first team to build out was a development team because building survey software is no small feat yeah. <laughs> let me tell you even though it um, and the survey software that we built because of our methodology of qual and quant and finding consensus amongst those videos and that sort of thing. Like it's, you know, there's some similarities from a user interface point of view because we wanted people who had ever used survey software to be able to be, be familiar so there wasn't too much um, friction in them moving from confirm it or survey gizmo or qualtrics across to quali but certainly the ip that we have in there around how we treat how we collect and treat video data or qualitative data required some serious you know building from a technical point of view what we couldn't do is take off the shelf survey software and modify it so essentially we built from the bottom up did you expect that from day one we did. And the reason being is because we treat participants vastly different to other survey software, which the key, the key principles is we, te- we, teach, we treat them as we would face-to-face participants. Mm-hmm. And we use a lot of survey moderation videos to do that. So it feels really friendly and human and personable and, and therefore engaging. So when you're not eyeballing them and you're asking people to just complete it in their own time in a 24 or 36-hour period... You need to make sure that when you've got them for that 30 minutes, they're with you, they're focused and engaged, i.e. focus group. So we wanted yes. to take that okay. same principle into this space. And from a researcher or a curious researcher such as yourself working with a tech team, are there different ways in which oh my thinking God. about problems? What a learning and- curve. What a learning curve. I've learned so much in the last four years about how technology is built and how software is built and also how developers think, um, and it's invaluable because software is not going to go away in, in our world, broadly even beyond the market research industry. So, yeah, certainly just understanding how to work with other people who think differently to you because I think as a researcher you get you put into an agency where, okay, there might be qualitative researchers and quantitative researchers, but really we all sort of are pretty similar but when you step out of that world and you work with people who are in operations and writing code mm-hmm. and, and things that you've never seen before, again, that sort of contrast, coming back to when I was a kid at five, yeah. going to Vanuatu and Fiji, I think that contrast was like mind-blowing. And it'd been, I felt like it had been a while professionally since I'd had that real, whoa, this is different. So these people in this profession or this professional kind of, they think like this and the, mm. role they, the way in which they tackle their task yeah. is quite different to the way in which my brain might be wired. Absolutely. Yeah. So beyond just trying to build a product, it was also trying to even speak the same language and understand how they view the view the mm. world. So it's been, um, yeah, certainly time's not easy. And I'm sure Steve, who's our CTO, has probably found it hard dealing with qualitative researchers because we're kind of a bit woo sometimes, you know, projecting techniques, what? You ask people to do what? So I'm sure along the way there was moments of, God, are we even speaking English together? Um, But I feel after four years I've got much deeper appreciation of how they operate and I think I'm, I'm, and Steve will be testament to this, but I think we've got a really good working relationship now about how to turn something that is so emotional and touchy-feely into a line of code 
There's a lot of leaps that happen in between that. And being such a lean team, often you wouldn't have the, the, the deep domain practitioner dealing directly with the development team. You would yeah. have people like scrum masters and product owners and UX mm-hmm. UI designers, mm-hmm. all these other professions that don't exist in market research, sort of in between you. And so, but when you're such a small team, you wear a thousand hats. And yeah. so you have to bridge that gap of, of skill sets. Yeah. So it's really having those discussions about what, what's required. It almost sounds like it's about defining this is where we're heading, this is a vision of what we're creating. Is that, is yeah, you need to start with the vision and then you need to also create empathy from the development point of view about like the user and what they need. And then it's almost breaking the vision down into very minute steps okay. so they can be expressed technically. Yeah. So um, as a business internally, you'd have a vision of what you want quality to be in five or so years' time, mm. the dream product, mm. but there's, there's steps to get to that. Yeah. Like, we need to do this, we need to do that. Yeah, and then the- and once you even – you'd probably break those steps down. So, you know, in three months we want to be this, in six, in 12, in five years, but even in three months you would break that down into – they run and operate in a sprint. So every two weeks, more features and more visual design is being released onto the platform. So we break it down even to what's being released every two weeks. And that's a combination of what we know needs to be in the product and also um, what we're hearing back from client users of the platform, features that they want that are handy. Might be things that they've always wished they wanted in survey software but never had the chance to request, you know, things like that. So we've got to balance like what they're asking for and whether or not that's just one client asking for one thing or whether that's actually going to be a really key feature of the product. So my, my, my role as a researcher in inverted commas is certainly still there because we're still training people in the methodology and running projects, you know, servicing projects and things. But um, they're constantly thinking about the prioritisation of features and how I apply the energy of that development team into the product. So mm. it's a, quite a different... Um, it's quite a different skill set, yeah. this idea of and prioritization. As a, as a researcher working on such a platform, uh, how, how are you approaching the, I guess, the user feedback or the research side? Have you kind of re, reassessed the, 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 the role that the, what your profession actually is about getting user feedback and customer Much more feedback? Lean, and, yeah. <laughs> I suppose. Our premise of quality is it's kind of an efficient methodology anyway, but I suppose my thinking is now every interaction with a user is testing everything, whether it's a sales meeting, whether it's I'm doing a a webinar, whether it's I'm demoing the software, um, whether I'm watching the very first of our clients build their own surveys, whether I'm just honestly, even whether I'm interviewing someone for a role in the business, Mm -hmm. every moment that I've shared something about the methodology or the product, the platform, is a moment for me to, to gather intel about That's what right. people think about it. And if they it. said, I've, I've used the product and I don't like this or I like that or have you thought about this, That's that's gathering user feedback. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So it's not, I suppose I've become less purist about you hold a focus group and you run an online survey and you must do user testing in this way. For me, any interaction, and that's what I kind of um, say to, you know, even, you know, developers who are, who are kind of also helping clients with technical issues and, and certainly our client success people in the business is every interaction you have with a user of the platform is, is a chance to understand um what else we can do for them 
might not happen in the next release. It might not happen for three months, but capture it. And so if we hear it enough, we can start to go, okay, this yeah. is an issue. This is going to, if we do this, it'll create less friction. And how do you stop being overwhelmed with suggestions of what you, could, <laughs> what you should be making it into? Um, I'm pleased to say we're not overwhelmed because so that tells me that the product is mostly doing what it needs to do okay. for people. So if you're getting feedback saying, have you thought about doing this? Often I can say it's coming and so yeah, then it okay. becomes a, a, an good. issue of prioritisation. So I know there's some things that I want to push out. I know from a commercial point of view, I want to push them out. And a client wants the ability to underline some text in the question as they've typed. I want to emphasise this one word. Can I underline it? I go, okay, okay. We'll have that at some point. But for me, I've got to go, okay, well, that's one client asking for one thing. But actually commercially, if we can put this feature in, all of a sudden that's way more interesting commercially for us as a business. We'll get to underline text in a couple of months. So you're constantly going through, um, yeah, how important is that feature to the product, our ability to sell, but also the perception of the platform. So that's the other thing we're starting to balance now as well is even though this feature might seem small and it might be distracting for the development team, does it actually feed into the user's perception of what we are as a product? Yeah, So Yeah. So the the role of online qual is... Obviously, there's other benefits too, but sort of being able to access people in their homes from across a wide, wide geographic area. You don't have to go into their homes and risk your safety and yeah. all those things. Well, in a way, we go into their homes more safely because you can see their homes usually in the webcam. And yeah, because we so. ask people to focus for us, they often do this at the end of their day. So they're in a more relaxed but focused state few dressing gowns we yeah. see from yeah. people people wearing relaxed clothing anyway you know usually a dog barking and because in the of the camera they're probably not feeling like yeah and, and an lots of people and do facetime and things like that it's not um it's not such a scary thing for people not everyone is obviously comfortable there but it's not it's becoming less and less of a big deal Ooh, we're on video um so yeah that's certainly one of the benefits i suppose the critical benefit of us is as a, as a person using the platform you don't have to look at every video that's recorded our algorithms find and do that heavy lifting for you so we talked earlier before we press record about what is the role of the researcher in the future because a lot of the data collection a lot of the advances and efficiencies have come with data collection but i'm yet to see um smart technology actually apply that insight to a business issue and i think we've kind of taken data collection and some of the analysis part of the way on our platform and i think there still is a role though for client client and or users, like research users of the platform, to do that smart thinking, that tip of the pyramid that we were talking about. Yeah, that's the, that a participant said something really quite insightful or interesting or relevant. Mm. Is that right? Being able to filter that. Yeah, so our platform does all that. It will do all the who are the most representative and best articulated voices of How each do you do video that? question. Is it just listening to... Uh, that's, that's your no, no, secret it's not, ingredient. But it's is, it, is that... Like, how do you kind of define from what they've what they've said? So it's a combination of algorithms making sure that video is served up to the right people at the right time, that yeah. scores are being attached. But fundamentally, they're working in conjunction with participants in the project. So um, me as a quantitative participant, I will watch a video and I'll indicate whether or not I agree with what they're saying yeah, okay. and how well it's articulated. So a combination of 
people listening to other people being enabled by our algorithms who are pushing video around the platform, making sure it's being seen by the right people. So a combination of that moment. I call it like HI, human intelligence. <laughs> um, our, and our algorithms mean that at the, when we come through an end of the project and 400 people have gone through it, we know for that particular video question, any of the videos that are top rated mean that they're very representative yeah, because okay. it, people are very, have very so much agreed with what they've said and also really thought they've articulated their point of view yeah. really well. We're sort of looking for those moments in a focus group when someone goes, oh, what they said. Couldn't have said it better myself, but we're looking for the... we're looking to, to test that those moments are also representative of all the people who have taken That's part. Right. Okay. So, you, so it's an algorithm, but you're not taking the human out of the algorithm. No. Yeah, so the human yeah. is, is part of that. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Because I'm yet to sort of... I mean, people have said to us, oh, have you used facial emotion recognition, facial recognition stuff and all those sorts of things? And I think... Machine learning is going to get there and AI might, but at the moment, humans listening to other humans is, uh, is the most powerful. Yeah. And, um, and the, the thing is, it's humans at the other end of this process, your clients, and they're going to understand what Joe 35 of Melbourne said and remember that far more than what's on slide 67 in a bar chart. Yeah, so yeah. the fact that we can make Joe 35 of Melbourne representative of... 82% of your customers becomes really powerful when you're thinking about video and what that delivers by way of insight back to a business. So things like text analytics to look at what they... Do, do, do you do that? Or you no. you listen to the so we can and... treat text in the same way. So again, it's obviously people reading what other people have typed in response to what they've seen or the issues that we're discussing and the algorithms work in the same way, making sure that people there's enough reviews happening of that text um, and making sure it's, the algorithm spends time. Um, if something's consistently high scored, then we know it's starting to appeal to the masses. Equally, if something's consistently low scored, we know that it's not really working. It's a bit of an outlier point of view. So the algorithm works, looks at those ends of the spectrum and then it also does a fair bit of work in the middle. So okay. people are coming through, whether it's their video or their text responses and they're slightly polarising, high scored one minute, low scored the next. Okay. It'll spend That's some time yeah. in that place to go, okay, this is a polarising group. Let's put some more weight behind that. Weight, not as in waiting, but more people behind that, more reviews behind that qual data to see should it really push up or should it actually drop away. Yeah, okay. So that's kind of... There's a couple of algorithms through the platform, and one of them is looking at that. Yeah. What do you find is the the the, um, the videos that tend to go down to the bottom? Um, look, it could be an outlier perception of something. So just you know, you see it in a focus group. Someone says something, and everyone's like, "Oh, that's weird." Or it's people who just haven't really articulated. So they're not great at self-reflection. Okay. So we give them some training and we help them to tap in. And look, not everyone is able to do that. So I'd say that's the two main reasons why people end up at the bottom. They're either just outliers. Some of our clients like watching those videos because they like to see what the 2% think. Um, or other times they might have a similar point of view, but they just haven't expressed it very clearly. Yeah, okay. And the expression of the insight is important in trying to... Um, tell that story back to the business and then beyond that immediate stakeholder if they're trying to influence their senior stakeholders and they want a narrative that's very clear and and a narrative that's come direct from the the market not the market researcher or the marketing manager sort of thing or insights manager so it avoids people who take over the group 
yeah. you know, have a view that's not anything like the group. Exactly. And so on, on the platform, everyone talks before they listen to other people. So there's no bias. There's no sort of – we've kind of removed that um, a dominant respondent moment. Yeah. Which I know from speaking to actually mostly strategic planners who we've talked to about this methodology of like, oh, I love that because they're always quite nervous when the dominant respondent comes in and trashes their ideas, their creative ideas. Uh, and so to be able to remove the impact of them mm. is quite interesting. Also, it's, what's fascinating, one time we actually pulled some of the top rated participants into a workshop. And so I could see their online kind of, um, they gave it all in their videos, but in real life, a couple of them were so introverted and it was fascinating to see them in a live group situation as opposed to being online. Mm, that's interesting. Because online they're in the safety of their bedroom. This is younger women. Safety of their bedroom kind of survey moderated them through video to kind of think emotionally or you know, tap into their feelings and talk to camera when they were ready and really kind of give it their all. But then in real life there was some that were just almost like say different people but just certainly the pressures of being in a group situation were felt that's by right. them but that's interesting it, it, there are people that would probably never go to a focus group because they don't like that mm. being in a group of people yeah. having to shout louder to to get their opinions across yeah. and i remember doing some work they, 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 there's a lot of people out there that are vulnerable like whether it's sort of mm. severely vulnerable or just feeling a little bit vulnerable in, in life yeah. i guess it, to me that had that had sort of um quality take that into account i guess that's where you see, see twitter and social media a lot of time you can you can be a vulnerable person who's stuck at home and they can still have a voice mm. it's probably the same mm. same thing really yeah i mean we collect at the end of every project and this is the this is when i was going back to when you asked about how you collect sort of user testing or insight about your product from a participant point of view we just have an open text box very last page tell us about your experience really open and they don't have to answer anything but Nine times out of ten, people have had a very positive experience because of the, the way we've built, the, the, I suppose, the UI, the interface for people to experience. But also we get a lot of comments with people saying, oh, I was a bit nervous you know, to talk to camera, but they or she, meaning me in the video moderation videos, made it really comfortable. And actually I got you know, better at it the more I went along or I yeah. learned something about myself or they have this moment where they think, I don't know if I can do this and then they find something within themselves to go, actually, I can. And you made me stop and think about a category that I just mindlessly consume or, or don't think deeply about. And so we get a lot of comments where people have articulated back to us that they have stopped and thought before they spoke. And, I mean, the feel-good side of this, regardless, irrespective of the briefs that we answer, is that I feel like going by taking people through this process, they're actually learning a new skill for themselves, irrespective of this is market research. In terms research, of articulating their yeah. opinions, yeah. And they're getting paid, and you know, wipe all that aside. By going through this process, people are saying, I, I know how to tap into my feelings. I know how to, how to articulately speak about how I'm feeling about something and that's such a valuable skill irrespective of market research that I feel all right that's my feel-good moment yeah. in, in what we've designed <laughs> yeah. I think people like to be heard I think that's that's I guess the key part of what we do mm. I, I'd never do it but at the end of focus groups I often think that if the money wasn't there they they probably would do it after the experience they would they probably wouldn't come to a focus group mm. <laughs> without the incentive uh, there but often they they really enjoy that experience the folks group or going to a quality or what whatever it might be i think they actually mm. enjoy 
just discussing what their thoughts are mm. on a product or some advertising or the world or whatever it mm. might be. So Yeah, someone said to me in early days of my career, the most flattering thing you can do to someone is listen. Yeah, that's mm. right. We had we got some feedback from our panel um, I think it was the end of last year, and it was, it was quite interesting. We were coming back about what they enjoy about coming to focus groups, but they said, oh, you, what, oh, there's one about you can voice your your opinions without being judged everybody's equal. And I thought, oh, isn't that nice? So they, but that's kind of what, like, what, mm. a, what you want them to feel in that safe And even sometimes they – this is a bit different to quality, but if they're going through a focus group, they might have a view and they listen to other people's perspectives and they bring it on and go, oh, that's interesting. I've never really thought about mm. that perspective. We'll go, oh, that's, mm. that's quite sort of that's, – that's a um, – yeah, it's a feel-good moment in, in itself. Yeah. You, you were in the, um, or not you, or you were, and also Quali in the Australian Financial Review a couple of weeks ago. That's kind of cool. I know. Look at us all getting into the lay press. Uh, yeah, so that was to announce we had another round of funding that mm-hmm. helped us really put our foot to the floor of essentially turning the methodology into this self serve platform. And also to announce some of the um, incredible investors that we've got now in the business, which, you know, range from people who have scaled SaaS, so software businesses, B2B software businesses, to those who have worked in the technical space, to just um, a former Australian of the Year, <laughs> Simon McLean. Some, some of the name drop a few. Yeah, uh, okay. So Chris Reed, who used to scale, he scaled, his, I suppose, claim to fame is, is scaling zero, the accounting software, okay. from a small team to a very large team. Um, so he's our go-to guy in terms of helping build sales engines and um, B2B selling and marketing. Um, um, we've also had a few uh, – um, so Simon McKean, who's obviously a former Australian of the year, who's just super passionate about, um, I suppose, new businesses that come out of Australia. <laughs> um, we've got a couple of other heads of industry who prefer to stay in the back room, um, but they've come through from um, sort of insurance companies and things like that and banks. Um, but also Madad Bagai, who was um, people, if you've ever heard the phrase of Horizons 2 and 3 and the yeah. idea of okay. scaling and growth, he was part of the team that coined that. So he's an ex-McKinsey consultant. Um, and he was a really fascinating guy to pitch the business to because he was, I think, the only meeting that we had that at the end of it he said, I really, first of all, I want to get right under the hood of how this methodology works, so explain that couple of other questions and then at the end of the meeting pretty much said i want in and for this amount of money and so that's kind of what you want to that's what you want from an investor meeting is to know that they're in and how much they're in for and he he obviously has his process he goes through yeah absolutely so to get on his radar and he he has his own he's out of mckinsey now and has his own kind of um consultancy and does a lot of feel-good work and he very rarely invests in australian businesses so to be on his radar and also get him at a time of the business where we're all about growth and scaling so now we've got this front on the platform people can get on there and do it themselves our um, business is in that i suppose phase now you know we've got we've got product market fit people are confident that people love the methodology they want to use it we've got the platform up and going um so now it's about case trying to get it in as many hands as possible so to have someone of his stature in the business to just be able to call up and say, what do you think about this pricing strategy or this go-to-market strategy? He just comes with such a wealth of... So you've got a relationship that you can go, what do you think about this? Yeah. So some of our investors have decided to stay in the background and that's fine and I haven't met them, but others um, are available should we need them um, for, you know, quarterly check-ins or that sort of thing. So, I mean, wow, just learning from 
people who are market researchers as well is just really mind expanding, yeah. uh, really big. And I assume they're very pragmatic about going. That's that's all fine, but yeah. this is like this is where we need. They're to just go very, on. you know, half an hour with someone like that with their minds focused on your business is worth weeks of workshops and meetings and things like that. So they're at the top of their game for a reason, and that means that they can come into a coffee fireside chat with you, a coffee catch up, and just laser focus in on asking you the right questions, but then also giving you really great advice. Mm-hmm. So um, we've got and and also very well connected people, um, certainly at the C-suite level. So there's no shortage of, of introductions that can be made, I suppose, for our business. So that's exciting as well. But just having their strategic, globally, you know, expanded brains on our business just helps us think beyond we're qualitative survey software to go, okay, we're a global player, we can be, and just so happen to be born in Australia. So how do we scale this business appropriately that doesn't, you know, break us in the, in the meantime? Yeah. So it's a, it's a really good brain trust for us to tap into. Yeah. And that idea of, well, not my idea, it's, it's exactly sort of your, your vision about being a, a global insight platform of, that's probably mm. not how you would say it, but sort of like having that global market rather than having a, a domestic focus. What does that like, what does that mean for the business and I guess the way in which you kind of approach how you do what you do? Yeah, well, so I mean, one of the other guys who's who's helped in that space is Tony um, Ward, who used to um, run SurveyMonkey in this yeah. region. So he's been there, done that. Yeah. So that's helpful. Um, and look, I suppose we we were we would focus on Australia because that's where we kind of started, I suppose, and that with a very small team, that was a place that we could reach the best. But within about within the first year of trading, really, we got some interest from the UK, which came organically. So we thought, well, why not? We felt it was really important early for the business that we could prove scalability. So so keeping those um, UK clients there even in a small way half a dozen projects and they approached you they approached us yeah Yeah. little old us (laughs) Um, so keeping them in the mix just kind of was a good narrative to investors to say look there's application of this beyond the the, you know our foreshores if you like Um, so that as a market has certainly and we all know in market research the UK market's a bit of a prestigious market so lots of new and innovative and interesting ideas come out of it a lot of great research has come out of the UK so it was important to us that it could be as popular there I suppose or as desired there as it was here Uh, and also culturally we're similar so our approach in how we teach teach sorry not teach treat participants was really similar culturally. Okay. So that was sort of... And, and that's and an interesting book. The research philosophies of the research industries can be different yeah. across the world. Yeah, and how you engage years. people. Both Rob, the other... Um, Rob Marginberg, the other co- research co-founder, and I have both worked there as well. So we had a you know, history of, of working there a little bit as well. So we sort of understood how similar, I suppose, it was. So certainly in this next phase of growth, we've, um, we think, and I don't want to jinx it, but we think we've landed a very hefty um, player over there, which... Will be it's kind of scary because they're big. Yeah, Yeah, they're big, but we can, we'll do it. (laughs) So, so, um, uh, yeah, it's certainly a focus for the business as we kind of operate here and start to push a bit more with um, some people on the ground in the UK to help us kind of push into that market as well. Then, of course, the other big Western culturally similar market is the US, which 
I think um, we don't want to scale too quickly, and I think to be in the US Why market... Not? What are the risks of scaling too quickly? You just can't onboard and service clients okay. well. And your first 20 clients, you learn a hell of a lot from, and you also... Those early metrics in a business of how sticky clients are um, is really important. And you look, you'll burn a few, of course, but you learn so much from them that you don't need... 50 new clients or early clients to learn. I'm learning at the moment with, you know, 10 mm. on the platform. Um, and so we're also finding out... And you've got some out, prestigious brands yeah. working with you now. So yeah. And you're working on very much of a, a research agency partner kind of role in some of those, is that right? Yeah, yeah. so we've got two types of, um, I suppose, clients. We've got a set of incumbent enterprise because we were B2B while we were really doing a lot of R&D in the last few years and that R&D was in the form of running projects for enterprise clients and government. So um, we've got this sort of set of incumbent clients that we work with um, who are shifting onto the platform with us at the moment, but also as a way for us to also scale the business and also step back a little bit from the servicing of these clients in time, perhaps, we're also um, talking to market research agencies for the first time. So that's a couple of months old, that um, new sales strategy, if you like. But look, if Qualtrics did it, they're pretty successful mm. <laughs> these days. So we thought, well, we'll give it a go as well. Um, so, yeah, so we've got this kind of two... Uh, so so with market research agencies, you know, we're a B to B to B business. So we're now kind of supporting them to pitch the methodology and run projects on behalf of their end client. Uh, so that's, that's a fledgling side to the business. And so we're currently going through the process of, all right, up until a month or so ago, Rob and I were the only people who knew how to apply quality to a brief, this okay. methodology to a market yeah. research brief. So everything that we now know and have experienced over the last couple of years, we now need to get out of our brains and our heads and into the brains of other people using the platform. So that side of the business is kind of fledgling, this onboarding and training side of things. Um, all new terrain, um, but it's kind of exciting in the same instance. It's just kind of put you put your boots in and jump right in and sort it out. So You must have complexities to resolve all the time. All the time. Yeah. Lots of spinning plates in the air, particularly yeah. as well because we have such a lean team. And we have a team, including contractors, of 14. Um, and a CEO, I sit across all functions of the business. So, um, But at the moment, I'm still training and supporting you know, new clients to the platform. I do the odd wireframe, so how the design looks actually in the software. Okay. I help prioritise the feature set, and so the list goes on. So actually the amount of research that I do is quite a slither of everything else. But, um, yeah, look, we'll scale, I suppose, to the US in time, but I feel like I want the platform and our processes around onboarding clients to be really stable. That market for technology is... Um, very different ecosystems in the startup space, the US to Australia. So in the US, you have an idea and you get thrown piles of money and to get to market quickly because there'll be someone on your heels. In Australia, you've really got to prove your worth to get funding and to get noticed. And so um, it's a real slog as a startup in Australia um, to do that. So um, it does mean by the time we get to the US, we'll be really stable and confident in every kind so of So you aspect. couldn't just... Like not really give up, or put put uh, Australia in their rear vision mirror and move over to the US, or just no, be in Australia I, and just sell to the US and UK. I think we would still need a presence in the US eventually, just yeah. as we've got one in the UK. I think you need people on the ground because selling it. There's still elements of it being sort of face to face, although we do a lot over web chat. Um, but yeah, certainly I think 
there's one thing with a lean team, you don't want to spread your efforts too thinly. And so some people would even say just being in two markets at the moment is too lean. Geographic markets, sorry, yeah. yeah, Is too lean, even now at our stage of business. But I suppose we stand by the fact that we've had interests that came to us um, and they're still interested and they're still working with us. Um, And also it's it's an important narrative for us to prove that we've got a scalable, global, Mm -hmm. um, you know, interesting product. So when we're thinking about investment rounds and and that sort of thing, that's a really uh, powerful narrative to say, look, we're not just in Australia, we've got clients in the UK, or be our footprints only, you know, they're worth 10 or 15% of the business, um, they're still there and it's just a case of manpower and boots on the ground to kind of push more into that market. So we felt it was a a strong part of our investment. But from an investor side, the investors you've got involved have got a global Mm. perspective, that's been part of where they find the product appealing the fact that it's got yeah global they've, they've invested in a scalable software platform yeah. so um that's what we're building yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so scalable beyond the australian shores so we know the, the big spenders in research are not in australia yeah. really and, so and are they kind of are there sorry i didn't mean to cut you off but um i guess complexities in the australian market that our market's quite strong we, we, we spend over our sort of weight sort of like globally in terms of like per capita, but we're a small market, we're only 25 yeah. million or so people in Australia. Um, are there challenges of, of scaling in Australia? Is it, what, do you, what, what do you sort of see as the, I guess, the, the, um, is the, the hurdles you might... Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, look, the, the future growth of our business is not in Australia. Yeah, okay. It's going to be out of Europe or the US. And, yeah. and simply being, having worked in those markets as well, you know, a lot of global brands are kind of told what to do in this market. So a lot of the formative research of things that then roll out globally or through different parts of the world happen not here. Yeah, so I think in terms of size of the prize and, and certainly just size of audience, it's definitely that side of yeah. the world. Um, but releasing, uh, releasing first in Australia and getting the product right and getting the, 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 the systems right is, is obviously a critical part of your yeah. business model, isn't it? Really? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I, and I think we did that just you know, purely because we lived here as well. Yeah. So, um, And to be, close to, to be close to the user or the client of the platform so we could build um, something that they could use and they wanted to use. And so it's much easier to do that kind of user testing, in inverted commas, and uh, I suppose research and development with people that you can go and have a meeting with. So to build initially for another market would have been just a bit logistically hard, Mm. I think. And also, Qualy's a brand new methodology. So you're selling, even though you're selling software, you're selling the credibility of you as a researcher who has designed something Mm, like this. And I suppose Rob and I, predominantly having our careers in Australia, there's a bit of our, you know, maybe people have heard of us before in previous lives. So our, some of our credibility of being a researcher for 20-odd years and, and designing something helps as a starting point. And then I suppose you can only get momentum from that for other markets as you go. I mean, how these, how these people found us through the in the UK, I have no idea. I do. It was through LinkedIn, something that we did a couple of years ago. But... Um, that was the other actually proof point was that these people didn't know Rob or I, so they weren't actually buying off our reputation. Mm. They were buying off the product, and that was an important part as well mm. for the investor story. How much are they just buying because they love Ainsley and Rob? You know, we could say in the very early days, those three early briefs that we got certainly was like friendly client, give us a go, but certainly beyond that, people don't know who we are. 
they know that we've got research credibility, but they've not worked with us before. So now we really know that the product is standing on its own two feet. Now I need to kind of bring it to an end to not take up too much more of your time, but I've got I've got a closing question I'll ask. But I'm just really curious about the idea of from a from a market research industry perspective. Um, and Australian research and globally research talks about all the important things like ethics and privacy and, um, and and quality around research. I don't think the conversation really occurs a huge amount around innovation or entrepreneurship. Do you sort of have any kind of thoughts on that idea of like maybe an Australian market research industry side of whether innovation and entrepreneurship should be more part of the conversation or do you feel like it is or do you feel like you got does it really not matter if it's not just an industry thing but just an australian cultural thing that we're a bit complacent sometimes with with innovation i was chatting to someone recently who went to an innovative conference in the u.s and said a lot of the innovation for our industry over there is coming from people who aren't in the industry so they've built something Mm, and they think it could apply into market research rather than being innovative from internal and I don't know whether or not it's an Australian cultural thing if we're just pretty laid back and tall poppy syndrome and why rock the boat? We've got it pretty sweet. Um, or whether there, and there's not that sort of risk-taking mentality. And so irrespective of it being a market research thing or not, it's just culturally how we are. We, no one gives it a crack here. Um, I think as well from a, from a big... You know, there's obviously in our industry it's kind of cottage or it's multinational and... You know, yourself working in a small agency, it's remarkable that you've got a podcast series because it's outside your day job. That's right. And from a multinational point of view, you don't get any favours for innovation because it's all cost centres and how much time are you spending on this project versus that. So it's either you're an overworked small business owner (laughs) or you're a time-clocked multinational player. So where in those two ecosystems Mm -hmm. is there the time Mm -hmm. and space to innovate? And so I think it's only people who, like Rob or myself, who have gone, right, we're going to shun both of those things for a moment and see if we can have a crack, or it's people from outside of the market research industry saying, oh, I've built something it might apply to you, that I think innovation comes. Which is kind of sad, really. Yeah, but I, I guess for, for young researchers coming through, putting out, maybe the answer is not, I'm going to set up my own research agency. Maybe the answer is going... What's something we can create that's got a global market that isn't just a consultancy, or not just just mm. a consultancy, but offering a little bit more of a, a wider perspective? And maybe if we went back ten or twenty years ago, that might have been really hard to do, and still hard. Mm. <laughs> Your story certainly is showing that there's there's effort and thinking and, and and work that needs to go into that. But but maybe that's a different perspective to what we would have thought about when we were, yeah. Mm. It's also the buyers of research, right? So we can create all this innovative stuff, but unless there's a meeting of the minds from people who buy research and want to take a punt to do things differently as well, so that not not because maybe they're risk averse buyers of research, but also like the time and um, effort it takes to investigate new ideas sometimes and the payoff for them. Maybe it's just not worth it sometimes for clients looking around. I'm not sure, but there's certainly. As actually Chris Reed, one of our investors, said to us when we were starting out, when he was scaling zero, he said, from an accounting point of view, he said, you've got those that wear T-shirts, 
you've got those that wear an opened shirt, business kind of shirt. Mm. There's those that wear a tie and a suit and there's those that wear cardigans. So you need to find, <laughs> it's just stayed with me, you need to find the T-shirt wearers and start there. And then in time, he said, you know, 10, 12 years down the track now, Zero is now talking to the cardigans. And I think that's yeah, a okay. really interesting analogy that even though, okay, we could wrap ourselves over the knuckles as an industry for not being innovative, but you've also got to have people on the other side willing to take that leap with you. And I think the people who have worked with quality, you know, there's a number of benefits why they like them. But if I think of some of the early people that really got interested in what they were doing, they've got a disposition to want to do things better and differently and have a crack themselves, yeah. even though they sit client side. So I think it requires uh, a meeting of the minds in that, in that right. way. It doesn't just and you don't need everybody to be your customer. I think that's a no, you don't not need initially. You just need the yeah. like mind. You, it'll happen over point, time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it'll happen over time. So we're looking for our t-shirts, not our cardigans, at the moment. That's right, and it needs to be good and solid. But doesn't need to be perfect. I'm sure there's points where where zero, and that's a huge success story, wasn't perfect. And even now, I, we use zero as a business, but it's, there's there's things that if if I was going to create it, it'd probably be different. Mm. But Mm. Wow, they've created a, an amazing business and, and hopefully quality ends up being as big well, or look, more. look, you know, Qualtrics was just bought for $8 billion. You can only dream, Jason. And it's just a survey <laughs> platform. We started off as with, with you as a young girl, eight years old, staring at people. What would you recommend for young people, not necessarily eight, but young people moving into the future to have a, as rewarding life or career as possible? Simple answer to a big question. Oh, yeah. I'm just in 60 seconds answer that. Um, what to do to have a rewarding life? I think it's about taking a moment, and it can only be maybe it's even five minutes, but spend a little bit of time self-reflecting on when it is that you feel most in sync or happy, I think. Yep. Because if you can find, if you can understand you and what makes you tick, then you can, you've got a chance of working out where to plonk yourself to kind of thrive. Okay, that's a good answer. Um, and I'll put the link to Quali uh, on the info for the, the, the show. Anything else you want to share? Are you on Twitter or anything like that? Or terrible, we're not on Instagram Twitter. Or? We're not even on Instagram. We're very terrible at that. I'm in I'm LinkedIn. I'm sure you're on LinkedIn, <laughs> that's fine. Right. I'm on LinkedIn. Let's, let's leave it at that. Thank you so much. Great, it's been really interesting. Thanks, Jason. To comment on today's show, do so via Square Holes or myself on Twitter or your favourite social media. You can find me at Jason Dunstone. For more on today's show, other episodes and articles on all things human-centred, customer-focused, innovation and entrepreneurship, go to squareholes.com forward slash blog. Thank you for listening. Uru.